Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. To get it together, trying to help the fellow man, hoping we can make it better. Do you really think we can? Well, it's uh, it's another Tuesday night, and it's uh, we are now in December, believe it or not. And uh, Christmas is on the way, and it's just hard to believe how quickly this happens. Um, This is John Fisher with The Catch on Blog Talk Radio, and The Catch is also a a daily devotional. I call it the undevotional that I write, Um, and we send out to a mailing list. You can go to our website, which is just catchjohnfisher.com, um, and see it there, but the best thing is to sign up, and then we'll send you an email every morning, five days a week, and something fresh. And we're doing right now uh, Advents. Each day I have a little something uh, about Christmas, and uh, it's it's really been fun so far. Um, and so I hope you will. Uh, I hope you take advantage of it. And if you do are not aware of all that we're doing. Go to Catch John Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. That's the tricky part. CatchJohnFisher.com and uh, and find out. We got a lot of things, uh, a lot of things happening. Um, and this Tuesday night is really a fun time for me. It's uh, uh, one of the times when I get to introduce you, uh, the listening, our listening audience, and largely our catch audience. And anyone else who might be listening in might have heard about it to some of my favorite people. And we've had just some really great people on. Well, we do. Every week we have somebody. Sometimes uh, it's, I, I don't know them. I'm meeting them for the first time. But most of the time, these are people that I've gotten to know over the years and I just consider very, very special. Um, I've got a dream. Uh, one of these days, my, my dream is to be sitting at a log cabin somewhere by a big fireplace with all my favorite people in there all at once and spend like a week in together or maybe a whole week and do nothing but just talk and grow and laugh and and cry and do all that stuff together. It, we, your life is too... Life is just too busy. We don't get to do that. I guess I guess that's what heaven's for. That we're going to get to do all. Maybe I'm. Maybe my vision is heaven, sitting around that fireplace up there, and that's probably probably going to be at least part of what it's like. But uh, I feel like I get a little bit of my vision and being able to introduce some very special people to you. And uh, today, tonight is no exception. Um, this this gentleman is a uh, a scholar, a, uh, a historian, and an author. Um, he's known uh, as for for his books, for his teaching. He's been teaching at uh, um, Columbia University for for uh, 27 years, and now he's at Dartmouth. Um, he has uh, a number of books. I think that the you know he's a he's a walking encyclopedia. I, I that's all I can say about this guy. I mean, it's he, he has even one of his book is is an encyclopedia of evangelicalism in America, and that's because he spent most of his life studying it. So he figured, I guess we'll hear about this, but I figured he just guess he just go ahead and just write it into an encyclopedia. I'm in the encyclopedia, and. Uh, uh, it's really exciting. I'm I'm right next, right in front of flan, behind flannel graph or in front of flannel graph, and I forget what the one in front of it, but I just thought that was so cool. Um, and and <laughs> I knew you'd like that, Randall. And then, then we've got we, we 
probably his most controversial book was uh, What's Wrong with the Religious Right um, and and how it distorts the faith and threatens America. Uh, we're going to talk actually quite a bit about that tonight because uh, I have some real concerns about about that and how where that came from and and how we can grow out of uh, the the holes that we've dug for ourselves in the world that we live in, and then uh, probably one of his classic is my mine eyes have seen the glory. That's when I first found out about Randall, um, a journey into evangelical subculture in America, and uh, that was um, Randall. Since you're already on, it's no secret. When did that first come out? Nineteen eighty nine, actually the fifth, the fifth edition just came out a few months ago. But uh, yeah, it started in nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine, I thought it was even earlier than that. So, but but the point being, um, uh, you were see that's when we were already starting to wonder what's going on with evangelicals in this country, and uh, Randall went into a, a, a bunch of churches and wrote into each one of them his experience. And uh, the thing I loved about the way he did this is the first time I've, I've read someone writing uh, about Christianity, but in an approachable way and in, in, a, in a non-evangelical way, in a way anybody could read it and understand it. He didn't use the buzzwords we're all familiar with using. He's very careful about that, and he's an excellent journalist as a result. And because of that, it went on to become a very popular uh, NPR uh, public radio uh, special. And then wasn't it television, too? Was it tele- yeah, TV, PBS, too? It was a PBS, a three-part PBS. PBS. Series, yeah. PBS. Right. So it was, and, and that's TV, right? That's right. And uh, so the whole world got to look at... Uh, uh, unbiased view of various evangelical churches, amazingly. And uh, the thing I love about that is if you paint that correctly and someone's looking for the truth, they're going to find the truth right there um, in, a, in an unbiased way. So uh, that I was so excited when I found that book, uh, just cited that Randall was on the planet and then I've had the chance to meet him a few times and get to know him he's a wonderful man and uh, so uh, the and then his most current book very interesting is the redeemer life the life of jimmy carter we hope to talk a little bit about that so um randall no secret you're with us welcome to blog talk radio <laughs> hey john good to be here uh, you're, you're a good man and uh listening to hear you listening to that introduction i've done a chapter on john fisher in that book right? why didn't i do that i chose jars of clay instead what was i thinking <laughs> oh well jars of clay was much more significant in terms of the movement we, we were the guys we were the guys that got it started and uh, as a matter of fact it's funny you should bring that up because that's involved with my very first question that I want to ask you because I I often have jokingly uh, claimed responsibility for the Christian subculture in America and it, it, there's there's a lot of things wrong with the Christian subculture in America in my point of view I I'm not even sure there's very much right about it um, <laughs> but uh, I I I claim I've you know, for 23 years, I wrote a column in the back of CCM Magazine, which is Contemporary Christian Music Magazine. And for all those years, I was I was simply writing my questions and asking seriously, what are we doing here? Are we doing the right thing? And um, slowly I began to develop uh, an understanding of what was right and what was wrong about what was happening with Christians. And I think one of the biggest things, was I saw fear as being a big thing developing in Christians in the 80s and the 90s, and partly why the Christian subculture grew so so strong, because people were afraid and they were running away from the world and they were finding uh, something that, that uh, they could identify with and be safe with uh, and still enjoy the culture. See, that's, that's the thing. When we first wedded faith, 
to the music we loved. And that I was doing that in 1967. Ooh. And I didn't record, yeah, I didn't record until 1969, my first album. And then the Jesus Movement hit, and I already had an album under my belt and a bunch of songs. So God had prepared me and, and just kind of threw us out there. But what was, what was so exciting about that was that we had music that that we could relate to and we were able to express our faith with that. And that was a powerful thing. And sure. what happened, though, it began to grow from there. And I can actually remember being in a meeting when I first heard about a Christian coffee house or a Christian um, nightclub or, you know, a Christian um, uh, movies, uh, you know, and starting to think, well, or how about this, Christian Yellow Pages? That that yeah. actually seemed like a really good idea because oh wow, we can all get together. And um, I saw <laughs> right. absolutely nothing wrong with that in in 1971. But what happened to that is we became isolated and we became a Christian subculture. Now, Randall, you've been a student of that, and uh, yeah. so I, I, you know. It, can you exonerate me? Is it all my fault? Yeah, uh, well, well you're, you're implicated, John, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't let you entirely off the hook on, on that. But, but let, me, let, me put it, let me put the historical perspective a little bit differently, and that is to say Great. that if you look back a little bit farther, what happens is that, and you know, these dates are, are somewhat arbitrary, and I, I, I acknowledge that, but after the Scopes trial of 1925, what happens is that evangelicals really kind of go under, under, underground uh, because mm-hmm. they're convinced that the larger culture is uh, both corrupt and corrupting. And this is the era when they begin to build their own institutions, their own congregations and denominations, Bible camps, Christian colleges, seminaries. I mean, there are a few that were mm. existing before that, but for the most part, this is when they're 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 forming their own missionary societies and publishing houses, and so they they really um, kind of hunker down into that world. And uh, I don't know a whole lot about your background, John. I wish I knew a bit more. But uh, uh, speaking for myself, it was possible mm-hmm. in the middle decades of the 20th century and my own life is an example of this, to grow up within this evangelical world or what I call the evangelical subculture and have, in fact, very little commerce with anyone outside of that world. Now, I went to public Absolutely. schools. I'm, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a, I, I believe passionately in public education. And so I, I, I wasn't that, you know, I wasn't uh, separated quite that much. But uh, nevertheless, you know, my entire network of friends were dictated by my uh, church associations and so forth. And, and this was not all that unusual. And what happens in the 1970s, and the 70s is really an important turning point, is that evangelicals mm-hmm. begin to kind of peek out of that subculture. And so your yeah. music was part of that. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, not, I'm yeah. not saying that to cast blame, <laughs> just to, to, to explain what, what <laughs> happened. And then, of course, we have you know Jimmy Carter uh, uh, moving onto the scene in, in the mid 1970s, uh, saying unabashedly that he was a, a born again Christian. And a lot of us, and I expect you did too, you know, kind of perked up and say, "My goodness, <laughs> this guy is saying he's a born again Christian. He doesn't seem ashamed of it, like we usually are." And uh, mm-hmm. we should pay attention to this. And of course, he's elected president. And then you have, and we can talk about this later. But you have this great, and this is really been the burden of my uh, my historical research over the last several years or decades even is this this great and really somewhat mysterious and certainly paradoxical uh, switch when evangelicals move uh, away from Carter and embrace Ronald Reagan in 1980 but something yeah. else happens then as well and this is really important I think when I was growing up within this evangelical subculture we had a very strong sense of ourselves as not only a subculture, but a counterculture. That is, we held values that were not embraced by the larger society. And one of those values was a very strong suspicion of affluence. 
Hmm. I heard a lot of sermons growing up about camels and the eyes of needles. I haven't heard a sermon on that in decades. And so Hmm. what I think happens is that as evangelicals became more successful in the larger culture, particularly with their political success, supporting Ronald Reagan in 1980, and we can come back and talk about that, why that was and so forth. But what happens along about 1980 is that evangelicalism, it's still a subculture. To this day, it's still a subculture because, as you know, evangelicals have their own language, their own jargon, their own Mm -hmm. celebrities, Mm -hmm. and everything else. And you're one of them. (laughs) Not not, not to point my finger. (laughs) But, but what happened after 1980 is that we're no longer a counterculture. And that, I think, is tragic. How's that? Wow. Wow. That is, that is we no longer stand, we no longer stand against the culture the way that we did the, in the middle decades of the of the 20th okay, century. Okay, so so we exactly. So we actually embraced the culture. Absolutely. But then, but then, Ronald, we 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 don't totally embrace it. We embrace it because, and we create our version of it. Yeah, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, don't you course, think that's part of the picture? Absolutely. Part of the picture absolutely. And CCM is the best example of that. You're absolutely right. But we, in in embracing it and creating our version of it, are we able to? Who's winning? In other words, are, are we influencing it, or is it it influencing us? Well, you know, it, it, it's a great question. Uh, I just uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, my eyes have seen the glory has come out in the fifth mm-hmm. edition, which is actually the twenty fifth anniversary edition. So I wrote wow. a new after afterward to that. Uh, there's actually a new chapter too on, on Hispanic evangelicals, but there's a new afterward oh, also. And at the end of that afterward, I talk about dancing. <laughs> oh, my. And, and uh, you know, growing up as an evangelical, almost a fundamentalist, I can, you know, my identity is a little bit muddy in that respect, but I'm happy to <laughs> talk about that. Uh, you know, I was never allowed to dance. But I do know enough about dancing to know that in any dance, one partner takes the lead and the other follows. And hmm. I think... For me, the question is related to your question: Who's mm. leading and who's following? And I mm. fear too often that the culture is leading, and evangelicals are following. And I think the great genius of evangelicalism is for evangelicalism to take the lead in this dance with culture, rather than to be, yeah, uh, what the follower. I'm not. I'm not sure the language on this, but mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. that's that's. That's a crucial, crucial distinction. And too often we allow the culture to lead. Now, I, you know, I'm going to steer this into politics here for a moment, and you can, you can right. wave me off if you want to. But uh, that's exactly um, where I wanted to go. So, that's well, great. I, I think, I, I, I think um, uh, the religious right is is the best example of this. Uh, uh, people who were politically conservative evangelicals, and I want to make the case, and I know you know this, but I, I want to make the case that that uh, the history of evangelicalism in America, uh, if you plot it on a political spectrum, uh, certainly in the 19th century and for many decades of the 20th century, evangelicals would, would uh, lean toward the left of the political spectrum, not the right. Religious right is really, I think, a historical aberration. And I think in hmm. 50, 100 years ago, when historians look back on evangelical political activism, they will see the religious right as this uh, aberration, and I would say even a tragic aberration. Nevertheless, hmm. evangelicals became in, involved in politics, particularly with Reagan's campaign in 1980, and they began to hanker after political power and political influence. And that, to me, is the end of the prophetic tradition within evangelicalism. Anytime a religious group hankers after political power and political influence, it loses Mm. its prophetic voice. And I think that's an example of how culture has taken the lead in this dance with evangelicalism. Wow. Wow. You mentioned uh, uh, in an article I just uh, ran into in Los Angeles Times recently about Donald Trump. And uh, 
why on earth are some evangelicals running to Donald Trump? And you go back all the way to back to Reagan and and um, and Carter. Um, right. Talk about that. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I don't remember exactly what I said in that article, but I, I my guess is that I said something to the effect that. Uh, you know, if you're looking for evangelicals kind of straying away from their own heritage and their own birthright, <laughs> you don't have to look at 2016 and Donald Trump. You can go back a whole lot longer than that. I think in 1980, yeah. and, and I acknowledge that there were many, many reasons that voters turned away from Jimmy Carter. I acknowledge that. I'm not trying to, to uh, gloss over that at all. Uh, this is not a, a happy time in American history that uh, you had uh, yeah. uh, the uh, eco- um, economy out of control. You had the taking of the hostages in Iran, all sorts of things happening. But for evangelicals to turn their back on one of their own, somebody who represents, in my judgment, the best mm-hmm. uh, evangelicalism in terms of care for those on the margins, those Jesus would call the least of these, in favor of someone who... Uh, you know, got into office, uh, uh, cut taxes for the for the most affluent, and so forth. And we can go through the the laundry list. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the the real defection of evangelicals from their own faith and from their own history, which I consider a noble history, uh, can be mm-hmm. traced a whole lot, a uh, whole lot back a whole lot farther than uh, Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Why? Randall, it just seems like why has the whole idea of, of of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' concern for the poor and and his you know the last shall be first and uh, the first shall be last and yeah. uh, how how come blessed are the peacemakers you know it, you know <laughs> Randall it's like it's like who Jesus is and what he taught has fallen into a big black hole. And we don't hear about that anymore. Yeah. What what happened? Is, is it well, the affluence? You know, that, I is mean, that the big it, deal? I, you know, I, 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 I can go you know, through the real history. <laughs> the, the real history is yeah. that uh, what happens is that in the 1970s, Evangelical leaders, now I'm going to say that and, and underscore that, evangelical leaders, not so much of the rank and file, as evangelical leaders, decided to defend, uh, I, I, I have to be blunt about this because this is what happened, they decided, decided to defend segregation academies in the South and Bob Jones University in the South and their tax-exempt status. This is what, I mean, people think that the religious right began in response to the Roe v. Wade ruling of 1973. That is absolute fiction. And if anybody wants to look it up, I've got a couple of books (laughs) that I've written that will will give you every footnote you ever wanted on that to, to, to dispel that myth. I call it the abortion myth. And, and I, I want to be clear that I'm not, saying that abortion is good by saying that or, or anything like that sort. I'm just talking about the history of it. Abortion had nothing to do with the rise and the emergence of the religious right in the 1970s. And I'll say it hmm. again for emphasis. Abortion was not the issue that got evangelicals involved in politics in the 1970s. What got them involved in politics was defending the tax-exempt status of racially segregated institutions, particularly educational institutions such as Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. That's what got the religious right going. And again, I can give you footnote after footnote if you want on that. Um, Wow. Abortion had nothing to do with it. Abortion became an issue by the 1980 presidential campaign, but it was not a direct response to the Roe v. Wade ruling of 1970. Oh, oh, oh my. So... So uh, civil rights, uh, Jesus doesn't have anything to do with civil rights. Then, Fair is that right? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm kidding. About and, that, and, and, and well, no, no. I mean, you. I, I'm trying to think back, and I think I think I'm 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 getting this. Uh, Martin Luther King would not have been uh, 
revered in the evangelical community. Is that right? He was, back to, he back was back not. Then? He was not, in fact. Uh, as far as I can tell, I teach a course on religion and the civil rights movement, which is mm-hmm. one of the favorite courses mm-hmm. I teach because I, I think it's such an wow. important movement in American history. Uh, evangelicals, for the most part, including Billy Graham, sadly, tragically enough, sat out the civil rights movement. Now, there were reasons yeah. for doing that, and, and I'm happy to talk about them. But nevertheless, they, they, they stood on the sidelines. Uh, as nearly yeah. as I can tell, only one evangelical, somebody we would identify today as an evangelical, was involved in the march from Selma to Montgomery in March of 1965. And I think mm-hmm. that's a tragedy. I think that's, wow. a, that's, a, that's a terrible terrible tragedy. Evangelicals should have been in the front lines of that march from Selma to Montgomery, just as they should have been in the front lines of the march for equal rights for women in the early 1960s. Yeah. Well, you know... You know, I mean, what did did Paul say about this? But also, not only that, but look at the example of evangelicals in the 19th century. Evangelicals were marching in the vanguard of the abolitionist movement. They were marching in the vanguard of the movement for equal rights for women, including voting rights, which was considered a very radical movement in the 19th century. This is our heritage as evangelicals. And for us to mm. turn against it so dramatically as we did in 1980, I think is uh, mm. is tragic. Well, you know, um, I have to sadly admit that... Uh, I the the civil rights movement went right by me, and uh, yeah. well, and, and in the Jesus in the Jesus movement, we were not uh, talking about civil rights. We were not talking about the poor. Um, right. Now there might have been some, but I was not aware of it. I mean, we yeah. we were talking about salvation for sure we're talking about the gospel and getting people saved and the lord coming back you know that's that's really was all that we were talking about and yet there were huge issues going on in our culture that i think just uh went right by us well i think and and, uh, you're right and and i it i i don't i think that and i was a little bit um if I may say so, John, I'm a little bit younger than you are, not by a whole lot, but a little bit younger than, than you. So, I, so maybe I get a pass on that just because I was um, not not really yeah. of age. But uh, the other thing that I will say is that, uh, again, coming back to what I said earlier, there was not that emphasis in the middle decades of the 20th century on political activism among evangelicals. We were kind of hunkered down into our own world. And right. the Jesus movement was... Uh, you know, kind of peeking out of that world a little bit. But it was still very much uh, a world that had its own uh, mm-hmm. mores, its own language, its own theology, and political activism, for the most part, was not part of that. Wow. So I'm letting you off the hook a little bit. <laughs> okay. <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, but 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 these things are central to the message of Jesus. That's... That's what I'd like you to speak just a a little bit to that. I'm sure. What are what are the biblical marks of a Christian that we don't see today that we are missing um, because of these influences? Well, I I think, you know, it's easy to point fingers. And, you know, anytime you point your finger at someone else, three or four point back at yourself. And and I don't want to be the first to cast stones. Um, but I, I think Jesus is pretty clear that, uh, particularly as you mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, that we need to look after those who are less fortunate, for the less, uh, care for the less, least of these. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, he bless, said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He also expressed uh, concern for the tiniest sparrow. It seems to me that that would have some relevance to our conversations about the environment and climate change. Mm-hmm. Change. It seems to, uh, Jesus talked about welcoming the stranger. Now, I know the, these mm-hmm. matters are complicated, but uh, it seems to me that has something, some bearing on how we 
treat immigrants yeah. in our society. No, you know, again, it, I know these are these are complicated issues, but at least the words of Jesus should have some uh, effect on our inclination. So when Donald mm-hmm. Trump just today or the, mm-hmm. yesterday mm-hmm. makes this outrageous statement about Muslims, for example, uh, you mm-hmm. know, believers should be should be rising up in outrage at such a statement because it so clearly violates the mm-hmm. the, uh, the the interests and and the, and the passions and the concerns that Jesus articulated all those years ago. Now I'm I'm yeah. I'm prepared to acknowledge that you know not every word of Jesus has a direct bearing on particular uh, political issues that, would, that they, we need to exercise discernment and how this plays off, plays out rather mm-hmm. in the in the political mm-hmm. arena. But at least it should it should uh, signal to us what our disposition is, where our interests should lie. That mm-hmm. is to say, mm-hmm. for example, uh, when a politician comes along and and, pol- and promises all these massive uh, tax breaks for those who are the the most affluent in society, I think that people of faith, people who call themselves followers of Jesus, who say, well, wait a minute here, let's talk about this. Um, how does this uh, comport with the gospel? And uh, mm-hmm. we have, we've, we've come up with this idea, and I'm fascinated by this, we've come up with this idea somehow that Jesus, Jesus endorsed free enterprise and, and, and capitalism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my goodness, where did this come from? And and carrying guns. <laughs> One carrying guns, right? Carrying guns, right? Exactly. And and you know, I I I'm a historian, so I've I've done some some work on studying evangelicalism in the 19th century. And you know, I have to say, the last time I really kind of dived into this. I found that prominent evangelicals, including Charles Grandison Finney, who was without any question the most important evangelical of the 19th century, Finney excoriated free market capitalism. He said, wow. uh, in effect, he said that a Christian businessman was an oxymoron uh, because <laughs> business and commerce necessarily elevated avarice over altruism and how could that be consistent with the gospel now i you know uh, wow. every every statement is culturally conditioned and and i'm prepared to have a longer conversation about this but uh to come around in the 20th and 21st centuries as many of these evangelical leaders have and say that god was or jesus was a capitalist or a Mm-hmm. An apologist for free market capitalism. I mean, what are they smoking? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the fact that the fact that those things are not even being said, that, so that we don't even have the opportunity to think about that as a Christian. Right. Yeah. Right, you know right. that there there might be something wrong with capitalism. You know uh, right. that uh, we don't even we don't even hear that. We don't even have that discussion. Exactly. Just like we don't yeah. have. Right. We, I want to be clear that I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that capitalism is not the legitimate economic system, not at all. But, but to baptize it as uh, yeah. as as godly or Christian, I think is is uh, you know, frankly, yeah. that's that's nonsense. Yeah. Well, of course we can go all. Yeah. Well, you know, what I want to do is turn. Our discussion, just because we have uh, about maybe about ten fifteen minutes more, I want to, I want to, what I want to do, Randall, just so you know where we're heading. I, I want to get something helpful to believers who want to know how they can re- best represent Christ in the marketplace now today, and um, I, that's really what I want to get to. And but to get there though, we've got to deal with these Christians that we don't like. Okay, I mean, uh, you've you've undoubtedly uh, heard of uh, the uh, Lord save us from your followers. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and and in fact, um, can't even think of his name now. Who who wrote that? We've had him on our show. It was wonderful. Um, But you know, I, I find myself getting mad at Christians for being mad at the world. 
You know, and yeah. in other words, yeah. I'm, I'm judging Christians for being judgmental. It's hypocritical, hypocritical, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, at the same time, these are the people who are supposed to bring the gospel of Jesus. So I say, no, no, no. damage is being done to the gospel. The world is misinterpreting yeah. who Jesus is because we are Jesus to the world. And, and I noticed Jesus didn't have really nice things to say about the Pharisees either. So, you know, how do we deal with this as as a Christian? Do we just kind of ignore all this and just seek to be the people God wants us to be in the world? Or yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question, John. And, and I, I, I'd, I'd want to ask you that question because I think you probably have more <laughs> wisdom than I do uh, about these things. I, I think it's very I, – I think we have to acknowledge, first of all, that – that uh, being a believer in in the world is not an easy thing, and it, it's it's complicated, and especially in the United States right now. And I'm going to try to explain why it's complicated, probably for reasons that uh, some of your your listeners may not think of uh, initially. Uh, it's complicated, I think, because we have to acknowledge that we live in a pluralistic culture. Well. That's not always easy. And and yeah. hundred years ago, or even fifty years ago, sixty years ago, uh, we didn't have to worry about that so much. Uh, it really was mm. the, the changes to the immigration laws in 1965 that really began to change quite literally the complexion of America, with uh, mm-hmm. increased immigration from Asia, uh, particularly South Asia, Southeast Asia, and so forth. Uh, all of a sudden, America looks different from what it did in the, in the 1950s, mm-hmm. 1940s, and so forth. And I think a lot of mm-hmm. people are uneasy about that. They, they they don't like it, and I understand that. But that is the, that's where we live right now. But I yeah. also want to recommend to my fellow believers, and I consider myself a, a believer. And certainly, I hope Jesus does. <laughs> um, <laughs> I also want to recommend the the virtues of being marginalized or uh, or even a minority. Now, we're not a minority by any stretch of imagination, but sometimes it feels that way. And I think the, the temptation sometimes is to... Uh, is to kind of go back to these 1950s, the era of the 1950s, or at least as we imagine the 1950s, when when Christian values were regnant in American society, and uh, everybody said uh, under God and the Pledge of Allegiance, and so you know all this stuff about in God we trust on our our money and so forth, uh, which all of that goes back to the 1950s, by the way, historically. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think there's a temptation to try to say let's remake this entire society so that it is a Christian society. And that is precisely, I think, the wrong approach. Uh, one of my heroes is the founder of the Baptist tradition in America, Roger Williams. Roger Williams was a Puritan minister in Salem, Massachusetts, came over in 1631. And very quickly, he understood the dangers of too close an association between church and state, between the faith and politics, and uh, uh, Williams was was uh, hounded out of Massachusetts and, and went on to uh, Rhode Island, where he founded a place of religious liberty. But he said famously that it's important to separate the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world by means mm-hmm. of a wall of separation. Those are his metaphors. The garden of the mm-hmm. church from the wilderness of the world by means of a wall of separation. Now, of course, the First Amendment comes along in the late 18th century, and it it does exactly that. It it provides for the separation of church and state. And by the way, Mm -hmm. I'm prepared to argue that the First Amendment is the best thing that ever happened to religion in America because it Mm -hmm. set up a free marketplace for religion, for evangelicals in particular have fared very, very well in this free marketplace Mm -hmm. because Evangelicals know how to communicate to the masses. But going back to Williams for a second, what's often missed in Roger Williams' uh, formulation is that 
uh, how should I say this? The, the Puritans were not members of the Sierra Club. <laughs> what I mean by that is that <laughs> Puritans thought wilderness was a place of darkness and danger. Wilderness was where evil, where where, where Satan lurked. And so for Roger Williams to say that he wanted to separate the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world, what he means is that if there's too close an association between church and state, it is the integrity of the faith that suffers Hmm. by too Hmm. close an association. I'm going to give you an example of how this worked out works out. This is just one anecdote. I'm sure you remember in 2001, down in Alabama, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roy Moore, put in the lobby of the Judicial Building in Montgomery, Alabama, Mm -hmm. a statue with the Ten Commandments uh, the size of a washing machine. And uh, I happened to be one of the expert witnesses in that case. So I went down to Montgomery, Alabama and testified in that case and testified in in effect, what I just said, that religion has flourished in American history precisely because of the First Amendment and because there is no state church or no favoritism to one religion or another because it sets up this marketplace. When Judge Thompson ruled correctly that that Ten Commandments monument represented a violation of the First Amendment because Roy Moore insisted that no other religious uh, representation was going to be in that space, just the Ten Commandments. He ordered that monument removed, and one of the mm-hmm. protesters screamed, Get your hands off my God. <laughs> now, unless I miss my guess, one of those commandments <laughs> on that monument said something about graven images. Mm-hmm. And that was precisely <laughs> wow. Roger Williams' point. Right? If the <laughs> church and the state are too closely aligned, it is the faith that gets compromised. It's the faith that becomes trivialized. And here it became trivialized in that granite monument in Montgomery, Alabama. Wow. Wow. What a great story. My goodness. Oh, I gotta have to I gotta have to come back to that one. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that is. Um, that's okay. So, so this is largely what we've done. How are we? What would you say to a Christian who wants to be in in the marketplace yeah. and wants to represent the gospel uh, of, of Jesus, the gospel of welcome, and parts of it are. Uh, going to be different than than the one that's broadcast um, yeah. to a lot of people. What, yeah. what would you say to, to us? Have, you know, give us some kind of hope or direction. Or, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, John, many days I'm not all that hopeful. I feel pretty discouraged many days. So that's why this conversation yeah. is actually useful to me because I feel a little bit encouraged because <laughs> I'm speaking with a kindred spirit even though I don't want to 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 taint you with my <laughs> my 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 views on, on things. Um I, I think there's something to be said for being outside of the mainstream, for being on the margins. Mm-hmm. I've said for years that I think religion functions best on the margins of culture and not mm-hmm. in the councils of power. Because once you begin to lust after power and influence and proximity to power and so forth, I think you begin to lose your prophetic edge and your prophetic Mm -hmm. voice. And so I I have enormous respect for people like Jim Wallace and and, uh, Shane Claiborne Mm -hmm. and Tony Campolo and and many others, including yourself, who Mm -hmm. position themselves on the margins and say, listen, we're not going to be seduced by the mm-hmm. illusion of power and influence and proximity to power. We are going to maintain our prophetic voice, even though it means we're on the outside looking in. Uh, that's how I see Jesus. Jesus was not a political insider, as far as I can tell, in my mm-hmm. reading of the scriptures. Uh, he was he was always on the on the on the margins, 
And that's mm-hmm. why I think, where I think the faith functions best. Now, does that mean that I don't think Christians or evangelicals should vote? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, nor do I think they should mute their voices in political discourse or public discourse. I happen to think that public discourse would be impoverished without voices of faith. Mm-hmm. But I think we should also be realistic about what our uh, our goals are. And I think there's there's a, a real advantage to be on the, being on the outside looking in rather than uh, you know, trying mm-hmm. to manipulate the, the levers of power because the, that's always a false god. Wow. And and there are, because the Christian right has gained power, there are levers of power right there. There are, you know, I, I struggle with that all the time, you know, and that's, in that's terms right. of uh, wanting to be successful, wanting to sell lots of books, you know. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's almost like okay. I know, I know what I could say to be in the mainstream bullseye of the Christian market, but I sure. don't want to be there. I can't right. be there, yep. you know. And uh, yeah. so I think that's that's maybe what hurts a lot of us because we have to. We're kind of in neither world, you know. And yep. we're uh, right. uh, uh, out on the edges. I know for a lot of musicians, a lot of Christian musicians have struggled with that because. Right. Yep. They, they, their music, you know, like the Mark Hurds of the world, and their music have not been accepted by Christians because it's too, too worldly and too real, too, you know, and yet um, the the world sees them as being, you know, too, too Christian. <laughs> yes, exactly. You, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, it's tough. It, it's tough. And and you know, but that yeah, that's the. In some ways, that's the adventure of faith. I think. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, you agree, John. That yeah. is, you, yeah. If if life were easy, if, and and I think there's a sure. I understand the impulse to try to to make uh, make these into simple choices and so forth. But it, it's not. Uh, and yeah. And that's part of the adventure of faith. That's part of the the yeah. importance of faithfulness. Uh, negotiating the six. And and by the way, I'd, I'd be happy to have more uh, book sales, and uh, uh, that would be, be a great thing, don't you think? <laughs> I'm sure you would too. <laughs> oh boy. Well, you know, let's. let's I want one more question. I want to bring it down to the to to relationships. Now, um, think think about uh, in the marketplace. Be uh, as a Christian, and and you spend a lot of time in the secular university. So, uh, you know, how do we represent our faith uh, in that marketplace with people who aren't Christians? I mean, do do we do we have to say, you know, do we have to say continually, no, no, I'm not like I'm not one of those, or you know, how do we how do we distinguish? Yeah. Uh, is that is that hard to do, or is that that just something sure. we just it's very hard. just speak the truth? And... Yeah, that's, how, I think it's very hard. I, I, yeah, I, I think that that's very tough. That's, uh, when there are people out there representing a faith that you you share, uh, at least ostensibly, you mm-hmm. share with that person, and you, uh, that person is doing it in a way that you don't find winsome or or even mm-hmm. true or authentic i think that's that's very difficult I, mm-hmm. I i i keep coming back to the virtue of humility i think humility is an off mm. often overlooked uh, mm. characteristic uh, particularly among evangelicals and and i include myself uh, and i mm. i'm aware of this but you know, if we approach the scriptures, if we approach our faith, if we approach culture, if we approach politics with a spirit of humility, I think that would go a long way. That is to say, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as as Paul says, uh, I know in part and I prophesy in part. That is, uh, I, I I take these things seriously. I take the faith seriously. I take the scriptures seriously. This is my my best understanding or my best interpretation of this, and this is how I think I should live and how I should operate in the world. But you know, I may be wrong about that. Boy, what a, you know, I I don't know if you've seen this, but people never people are so averse to saying, "Hey, I'm wrong." 
<laughs> and I say it all the time, yeah. and pretty much every day uh, I'm wrong about something. And I, I think I think being humble uh, allows you to, to say, hey, I'm wrong, or I may be wrong about this, but this is my best understanding of something, and, and this is how I, I want to proceed, and, and I want to live my life according to these principles. Uh, I, I think that's probably a good place to start. Uh, it not only is it a good place to start, Randall, but it's an excellent place to end, at least for tonight, because I uh, our time's up, but what a great focus on humility. I think that's that's the word for all of us. Um, Randall, I can't thank you enough for this time, and it's going to be very instructive, and I, I'm going to encourage all of my people to... Uh, to come back and, and listen to listen to this over and over because I think we have a lot to learn here. So John, uh, it's always a pleasure. Take care, of my thank friend. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, okay. Good night. Good night. Take care, John. Bye. Well, there, bye bye. Well, there you have it, folks. Randall Balmer. Uh, gosh, that was fantastic, and I hope you come back to this. And uh, don't don't. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to come back. I'm going to listen some more because uh, I really, really need to get a beat. He put his finger on a number of things that I think are going to be real important to us. But I like the fact that that uh, he, he's got us on the edge. And um, that's where we end up on the edge, but humble. So uh, there you go, folks. Um have a good week. Have a Merry Christmas. We'll we'll talk to you next Tuesday night. Uh, I hope you enjoyed tonight as much as I did. Uh, this was fantastic. Okay. Eight one zero.